want to begin with a definition. So what we're going to do is look at a definition of preaching as the primary means of grace. Uh, after that definition, the marks of what preaching is, and then focus our time thinking about the duties as hearers to faithful preaching. So this is the definition of preaching as a primary means of grace. It is the word of God at work in all who are listening, both judging and saving through the word and presence of Christ, who make it to have a saving effect upon his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'll say preaching as the primary means of grace can be defined as the word of God at work in all who are listening, both judging and saving through the word and presence of Christ, who makes it to have a saving effect upon his people for their salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in this definition, I want us to look first at preaching as the word of God. Preaching is the word of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Here we see that the act of preaching lies behind Paul's words. Notice an important connection there between the word of God, the apostles, and the Thessalonian church. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received this word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul's here teaching the Thessalonians, reminding them that they've accepted the apostles preaching as the word of God and stating that this word was effectually at work within them. So when the Thessalonians received the word of God through the apostles preaching, it was at work in them for their salvation. We see that later in chapter two, verses 14 through 16. Paul had witnessed then the fruit of preaching as the primary means of grace. Paul here describes the word preached. He emphasizes it as the very word of God. We can literally translate it as when you received the hearing word, which is the word of God. So the Thessalonians were not hearing the words of men merely, but the real speech of God. From this, we see that the preaching of the word of God really is the word of God. So when we think about what preaching is, the first mark, it is the very word of God. Commentator John Eady writes, literally translated, it would run thus. He says, And for this cause we too thank God unceasingly, that on receiving a word of hearing at our lips of God, ye welcomed not a word of men, but as it is in truth, a word of God, the word of God which ye heard of us. He says the same phrase as in Hebrews 4.2, which is there rendered, the word preached, the word might have been so, so far as you knew, a mere word spoken by us, ordinary men, he says, but it was in reality a word of God, and so you found when you embraced it. So Paul's language here is essential to the nature of preaching. Here we learn that preaching is not merely men speaking to men, but God speaking through men to save his people. When the word of God is faithfully handled, it carries then the same authority, the same power as the Bible itself. Heinrich Bullinger referred to this when he wrote in the Second Helvetic Confession that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. So preaching is the word of God. The faithful preacher is the servant, you can say, of the normative foundation, that foundation being the scriptures. 
so that when the faithful preacher speaks, his formal public teaching is the living voice of God at work, even if the words of the preacher are not exactly the words of Scripture. We should take confidence in the fact that when we hear faithful preaching, it is the word of God. God is speaking, and when God speaks, things happen. So preaching, faithful preaching, is the word of God. That was just a brief review. Second, preaching is the instrumental word. So not only is it the word of God, it is the instrumental word. How does preaching relate to the word of God? Through careful study of scripture, helpful distinctions become apparent. For example, Christ is called the word of God, but he can be understood as the personal word. We see this represented in the gospel of John. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Bible is called the word of God, but this can be understood as the canonical word. The word canon refers to rule. The scriptures are that rule for the church. And we see this in Paul's letter to Timothy when he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is the breathed out word of God. The scriptures can be identified as the canonical word. The preaching of the word of God, we can identify as the instrumental word. So we have the personal word, Christ, the canonical word, the scriptures, the instrumental word, faithful preaching. It is that ongoing means through which God effectually speaks to his people. We can understand the word instrumental as another word for means or, or way. We see this pointedly in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, as we just read. Paul reminds the Thessalonian church, you heard my words, but what was it really? The very word of God, that instrumental word. And again, we have to connect that first mark and the second mark. It is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. Therefore, when the preaching of the word is in accordance with the canonical word, it carries the same authority and power as the Bible itself. It is indeed the instrumental word of God. It's not the word of Julius or the word of Ryan or the word of any gifted brother or man. It is the very word of God to us and for us. So preaching, faithful preaching, is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. Third, it is the creating and recreating speech of God. Again, we're looking at each of these marks briefly, then we'll spend time reflecting more on our duties to the faithful preaching of the word. So third, preaching is the creating and recreating speech of God. So what is preaching? It is the word of God. Additionally, it is by this instrumental word of preaching that God demonstrates his power both in creation and recreation. We see this in the opening words of sacred scripture. The self-existent, self-sufficient God speaks the universe into existence. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said. Notice God's work of creation took place there by his speech. God speaks and brings the heavens and the earth into existence. He speaks and things visible and invisible come into being. Moreover, God performed this act through the agency of his Son, the personal word. We see that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. 
But how does the old creation become the new creation? How does this change come about? God's speech. Paul compares the old creation to the new creation as that light which shines forth and transforms. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. There Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. It is authoritative and powerful. Preaching is the instrumental word. And as God's speech, faithful preaching is recreating all things through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. It is the creating and recreating speech of God. Fourth, and finally, this fourth mark of what preaching is, preaching is the word and presence of Christ. Preaching is the word and presence of Christ. God has gifted and commissioned qualified men to carry out this great work, and when they speak, our all-sufficient prophet is present. Paul speaks of this necessity of the preacher in the presence of Christ in Romans chapter 10. This text may be the most important on preaching in all the scriptures. It reads, Romans 10, verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. From verse 13 through verse 17, Paul lays out a string of questions unfolding the chain of events that need to occur for salvation. He's already argued that all men are guilty under sin, Romans 1.18 through 3.20. He's also argued for the need of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, Romans 3, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 39. But when we come to Romans 9 through 11, Paul addresses God's faithfulness to his ancient people, Israel. Paul knows that the Roman church is aware of Israel's unbelief. And yet, nevertheless, he argues for God's purpose in electing an Israel's unbelief. So when we come to chapter 10, in light of that context, Paul argues that the gospel is for the whole world. But how will those in unbelief believe this gospel? Paul describes what appears to be two ways of salvation. One is by way of the law. But it's by way of the law, it brings what? Condemnation. The other way is by faith and brings salvation apart from works. However, how will those who remain in unbelief actually believe? Paul turns to the means God has ordained to make this gospel known For salvation. That's verses 14 through 17. The means is the proclamation and is how God brings the message of salvation to humanity. We observed earlier how preaching is the instrumental word and that normative foundation is the canonical word, the scriptures. Moreover, we've seen that through the canonical word faithfully proclaimed, it becomes, preaching becomes that instrument, that means by which Christ speaks and his spirit saves his people. The word and presence of Christ then in the proclamation here in Romans 10, 14 through 17, they lay at the heart of this passage. How are men and women to be saved? What does that mean? 
the faithful preaching of the word. Consider the second question Paul gives in verse 14. In the ESV, it says, of whom they have never heard. We can translate that statement more precisely as, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? The second translation better reflects that original language here. Next, Paul continues, how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we have the whom and the someone preaching, emphasizing the preaching of who. Later in verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the connection here. Paul is saying that Christ speaks and is present in the faithful preaching of the word. As John Murray comments, the implication here is that Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. Yes, in Romans 10, we find uh, reference to the men who are sent, but the emphasis there is on Christ. Christ speaking to his church, Christ calling his elect through the instrument of faithful preacher. We have to remember that there are two speakers. Whenever you see Pastor Ryan up here, any man teaching and preaching, there are really two speakers. Christ stands with the faithful preacher that he has appointed, and he is present when preaching takes place. Christ is the one speaking and heard by those who believe. Faith only comes from the word of the ascended and the reigning Christ. The preacher is then a herald, an ambassador, who comes in the full authority of Christ. The work is so closely associated with Christ that we can say that the actual ministry is from Christ himself. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news we read of in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Think about this. As real as the preacher's feet, so are the preacher's words really Christ's words. Christ is making his appeal through commissioned men. You see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20. We don't have the time to Meditate upon that passage, but I highly, highly recommend you spend time this Sabbath day thinking through the reality that it's not everyone in the church who's an ambassador, as often 2 Corinthians 5 is interpreted, but those men that Christ has sent to speak the word of God to you, to speak the word of God about you, to speak the word of God for you. So just to review, what are the four marks Preaching as the prime means of grace, what is it? It is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. It is the creating and recreating speech of God. It is the word and presence of Christ. So that's just a simple way that we can, when we're preparing for the preaching of the word and we're spending time in prayer, think through those marks of that true reality. Father in heaven, grant me grace to remember that when Pastor Ryan any man goes up to preach. As well, long as they are faithful to the word of God, it is your word to me today. How do I understand that? Well, this is the scriptures and that's the preaching. They're distinct. It is the instrumental word. It is the instrument that God is using. Father, help me to remember that it is the instrument you are using for me and for your church. It is the creating and recreating speech of God. Father, help me to remember that as the faithful preaching of the word of God is taking place, you are creating, you are bringing about a new creation, and you are recreating me and those brothers and sisters around me. 
conforming us more into the image of Christ. May that be, may it have good effect to that very end. The preaching of the word of God is what? The word and presence of Christ. Father in heaven, I may not enjoy everything that I hear this man saying, his exposition, his exhortation. Father in heaven, help me to remember that it is the word of Christ to me as far as it is faithful to the word of God. It is the word of Christ to me to feed me, to nourish me, to encourage me, to uphold me, to strengthen me, to rebuke me. So those marks are very practical. But now we want to turn to the duties briefly. And then, again, if there's any questions throughout or even at the end, more than happy to answer questions. So just to review the definition once again, preaching. What is preaching as the means of grace? Preaching is the word of God at work in all who are listening, both judging and saving by the word and presence of Christ, who makes it to have good effect upon his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's critical to understand the primary duties of preaching. It's easy to hear the word duty, right? And just like, ah, duty. Um, Perhaps we sigh with some confusion, like, what is my duty? Maybe you assume that only the preacher has a responsibility to preaching. But Calvin said this. He said, those who neglect this means and yet hope to become perfect in Christ, he said, they're mad. Such are the fanatics who invent secret revelations of the spirit for themselves and the proud who think that for them the private reading of the scriptures is enough and they have no need of the common ministry of the church. Calvin pulls no punches. It's easy in our day to hear the word preaching and think this is a matter that only concerns the preacher. However, preaching is a matter concerning everybody. It concerns me, it concerns you, both the man in the pulpit, both the person in the pew. Why? Why does it involve everyone? Because it's the primary means through which God is pleased to save his people. The man in the pulpit and the person in the pew are both then active. They're both active. Another misconception is that the preacher is the only one who is active because he is the one standing and speaking and everyone else is sitting and hearing. However, both ministers and members are under Christ's authority. And while we may not seem physically active, our spirits ought to be. If we fail to get this, we will not profit from preaching. So there's two main duties that I want to put before us to meditate upon. First is the duty to remember the reality of Christ's present activity. Remember the reality of Christ's present activity. The key word there is the reality, the reality. Many come to a worship service and are physically present when the faithful preacher enters the pulpit, but they do not profit from the preaching. We have to ask, why is that? Some are quick to say it's the preacher's fault, and at times that may be true if he's not faithful. Many reasons can enter the mind of the person in the pew, but the most basic reason we do not profit from preaching is that we don't possess the proper theology of preaching. We don't know how to think about preaching in accordance with the word of God and even the creeds and the confessions of the church. R.C. Sproul was right when he said that everyone's a theologian. However, we have to ask ourselves, do we know what that means? Everyone has a theology. You have a theology right now, and this theology is a matter of life or death. If you're going to profit from preaching, you need to examine your theology of preaching. 
Therefore, it's worth asking directly, what is your theology of preaching? Do you agree with those four marks that we briefly summarized? What happens when your pastor or visiting minister of the word enters the pulpit and you're there listening? Is it just about you and the man behind the pulpit? This is where remembering the reality is critical, and it doesn't begin when the preacher announces to open your Bibles. Preparation needs to start before you enter worship. We need to prepare our minds well in advance. And how do we do this? Not only do we need a good night's sleep, we need to study what God's word and the catechisms and confessions of the church say and put them to memory. This is where the the Baptist catechism is so helpful. We need to meditate on the scriptures, confessions and catechisms mentioned, and we need to memorize and really internalize these truths. But we also need prayer. We need to ask the Lord in prayer to help us remember the theological reality of the preaching event. We need to pray in light of the word, remembering what God has promised to do for us in preaching. The Baptist Catechism can be a helpful guide as you pray. It summarizes our duty before, our duty during, and our duty after the preaching. This is Baptist Catechism question 97. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? The answer is that the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it in faith and love. That's the moment of preaching. Lay it up in our hearts. What do we do after? Put it into practice in our lives. We need to then plead for more grace to receive the preaching of the word of God, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. Paul taught that in his letter to the Thessalonian church, he taught them this very reality. They, think about it. They, they saw Paul. They heard Paul. But they were receiving the word of Christ himself. If the preacher then is faithful to proclaim, explain, and apply the scriptures, Christ stands with him, and Christ is addressing everyone who is present. Just think about that reality. Christ is addressing you in the faithful preaching of the word of God. As one pastor suggested, we must not only receive the faithful preaching of the word of God as a word of God merely, but but personally to us, for us, and about us. Along with this, we must pray for ourselves. We must pray for our church. We must pray for our ministers. While both the preacher and the hearer are active in preaching, it is well worth repeating the reality of Christ's present activity in the preaching act. Christ is indeed our all-sufficient prophet, our all-sufficient priest, our all-sufficient king, and he is present and active, and so we must come prepared to hear from Christ by his spirit. When we enter into corporate worship, Christ is especially present. He's present in a way he's not throughout the week, and he will be speaking to you, but will you profit from his word? Are you coming to the word preached with this conviction that it is the word of God, Are you coming to the word with a tender heart, expecting to be confronted and encouraged, expecting to be rebuked and comforted, expecting these things? Sometimes these things take time to settle upon us, for that stony heart to crack, for the fruit of this conviction to grow. Nevertheless, we must remember that God is more pleased by the immediate reception of his word. But what will we do to foster this conviction? What will be different so that you come to the preaching ready to receive it as what it really is, the word of Christ to you? 
So I encourage you to ask the Lord to give you the grace to receive the preaching of the word of God immediately. How will that look? One, it's remembering the reality, but also practicing our responsibility. So we have the reality of Christ's present activity, keyword reality. And we have practicing faith and humility. Keyword there is responsibility. So we have to keep these two things in mind, the reality and our responsibility. Nehemiah Cox wrote, the ministry can never be effectual to your souls if you be not sincere in obedience under it. And the following, I think, are the most critical duties you must practice if you're going to profit from the preaching of the word. First is faith. Now, good theologians carefully consider implications. It's essential to consider that while everyone has a theology, that theology impacts their whole person. It affects not only our minds, but our affections and our will, the whole person. Our duty in remembering the reality of Christ's present activity, our duty is to respond in persevering faith and humility to the word of Christ. We have to keep in mind that remembering and practicing go hand in hand. Whenever we come across the word remember in scripture, it denotes biblical meditation and action. Our minds are not only the the only faculty affected, it begins with our minds, but our affections and our actions are being addressed as well. The reality of Christ's activity in the act of preaching actually establishes our duty to prepare our duty to enter worship and respond to his word in faith and humility. It's one thing to acknowledge that Christ is speaking words of instruction. That's not what faith is. It's another thing to believe that Christ is speaking words of instruction, encouragement, rebuke, and comfort. We need to be like that father of the demon-possessed boy in the gospel of Mark who came to Jesus and said he believed and begged him to help his unbelief. While on this earth, we wage war with the presence of sin in our hearts and the world. Furthermore, Christ has already won this war. Yet the enemy may sweep us up and all our five senses can experience and we often forget the necessity to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, the Puritans often describe saving faith as the mind's eye. What the mind sees, what we must do is keep our mind's eye upon Christ so that when we prepare and we come to his word, the object of our faith, Christ, will strengthen our small faith. Practicing faith is not merely recalling that we need to have faith. It's coming to Christ, trusting in him, knowing that Christ himself gives us the grace to continue to trust in him. Remember, the way this faith came in the first place is how this faith continues, and that's by the external word of Christ preached We need a word outside of us to save us, and it's only the word of Christ. But what is necessary to experience the saving power of God? What's necessary is his gracious gift of faith. From where do we get a tender heart? From where do we acquire this conviction? It's all of God's grace. You know, apart from grace, we will remain with stony hearts. We will stay too proud to hear the word of Christ. But as Cornelius Trimp theological professor. He wrote, hearing is the preeminent characteristic of this New Testament dispensation. He calls it the dispensation of faith. And he says that faith stands in contrast to the work of the law. In our age, there's a great emphasis on the proclamation of the deed 
while the proclamation of the word is viewed as a cultural phenomenon. Nevertheless, the true basis of our faith is on the speech of the one true and living God. Trim says this, Hear, O Israel, that first confession we see in Scripture, Hear, O Israel, he says, is by divine design the life principle for the people of the covenant. It's also important to understand that this duty of hearing is not a one-time event, but it's the continual activity of the church, and it makes visible the church's holiness. John Webster, in one of his works, says, before the church speaks, the church hears. He says, hearing the gospel is never a finished business, never something which the church has behind it. It's always a fresh activity, so the church's holiness is always a process of the church becoming holy by standing beneath the word of the gospel as both promise and command. So we cannot come to the preaching of the word with a tender heart of believing without divine power. We cannot change our hearts. Therefore, we must ask the Lord for grace to come to the only word that can save us and believe. Not just, not just hear, but to truly hear is to believe the word of Christ. The answer to our dilemma then is that God has promised to perform what we can never do, and he does this in the new covenant. What happens in Ezekiel 36 and 37 when God called Ezekiel to preach to those unfleshed, lifeless piles of cartilage? God acts, and he makes the bones to have flesh and to stand. God takes that which has no power to change itself. And what does he do? He changes it. God makes dead bones live. From the prophet Jeremiah, we learn of what God will do. Notice the word, the word I. We only see it as a letter, but I, God. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the new covenant that I made with their fathers, the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is God's act. This is his doing. Our chief priority then is that we remember the reality of Christ's activity in preaching. We come by the grace of God with faith expressed in hearing that word of Christ, that word which lies outside of us and can save us. We have to take heed to what Jesus warned when he said, take care then how you hear. With the responsibility of faith in Christ's word comes the posture of humility. It's not only when we practice faith, but practice humility before the word of Christ. The duty of faithfully hearing the word of Christ is a humble doing of the word of Christ. We need to have a biblical estimate of ourselves as we prepare to listen when we leave the word preached. We must remind ourselves we are guilty, vile, and helpless sinners. That's from beginning to end. We are lost without the word of Christ. Without genuine humility, there will be no God-honoring submission to his word. As the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A broken and contrite spirit is a humble spirit. And this is the kind of spirit that comes ready to tremble before the word preached and keeps 
trembling before that word. We fail to submit when we forget the reality of Christ's presence and think we are merely listening to the words of men. When we believe that we are simply listening to men's words, we open the door to despising the preaching. We think we're just not hearing. It's not listening. We're actually despising the preaching. We can despise it by expecting too much out of interpretation. We can despise it by misunderstanding the variety in application, the variety of exhortations. Or we can despise it by thinking narrowly about the preacher's method or the preacher's presentation. Instead, we honor God. This is how we honor God. We honor God as we honor the instrument that he has ordained, that he has sent. Listen carefully to J. Mark Beach, another theology prof. He writes, because God is active in the preaching of the gospel, it is the duty of believers to submit themselves to the human instrument in proclamation, just as they would submit themselves to God's own presence. God joins his work to the working of human vessels. When one receives the word of God through the instrumentality of preaching, he nonetheless receives the word of God. It's a lot to take in. And not just to understand theoretically, but ask ourselves, as I've been sitting under the preaching of the word, have I been submitting to what seems before my eyes to be the words of men, but have I been submitting to that word as what it really is, the word of God? We must heed Calvin's call for the necessity of faith and humble submission to the word of Christ. Because if we don't humbly submit to that word of Christ, we will not be blessed by the word of Christ. Listen to Calvin's words. So then, if we earnestly desire that God should be honored and served, that our Lord should have his royal seat among us peaceably, to reign in the midst of us, if we are his people and are under his protection, if we covet to be built up in him and to be joined to him and to be steadfast in him to the very end, to be short, he says, if we desire our salvation, we must learn to be humble learners in receiving the doctrine of the gospel and in hearkening to the pastors that are sent to us as if Jesus Christ spoke to us himself in his own person, assuring ourselves that he will acknowledge the obedience and submission of our faith when we listen to the mortal men to whom he has given that charge. He goes on, therefore, let us sow the zeal we have for God's honor and also the desire and care we have for our own salvation and for the common welfare and edifying of the church, which will happen when all of us, both great and small, agree in this, that Jesus Christ has his instruments by which he speaks to us and draws us to himself. Do you desire salvation and the common welfare and edification of Sovereign Joy Reformed Baptist Church? It starts when we come to the word of Christ with faith and humility. This fact doesn't mean that the preacher is infallible or should add his words to the canon. His words may be weak. I know mine's are. <laughs> My words are weak and imperfect. However, our response to the word of Christ really reflects our response to Christ himself. If we do not come with faith and humility, we will not profit from this word. But if we come, remembering the reality, practicing faith and humility, we will profit unto salvation we will be blessed. I leave you with Matthew Henry. He says, where God hath the mouth to speak 
and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read, and may God give us a heart to profit. So a lot there to meditate upon. You know, this is very personal uh, to me, uh, not just because I teach or I preach or I'm preparing for the ministry, but because uh, the church I came from uh, at the very end tore apart. And that tear was led by a group of members who sat under faithful preaching for over 10 years. And they said it was great preaching, but they weren't hearing. And so we must take this to heart. You know, that really put fear in my heart, asking, asking the Lord to grant me grace, to remember the reality of Christ's present activity, to practice faith and humility, especially as one who prepares, listens to a lot of sermons and prepares sermons and studies the word. I don't want it to just be merely about the study of theology or propositions, but to remember that it is the word of Christ to me. It's the word of Christ for me. It's the word of Christ about me for his glory. Are there any questions or thoughts that you all may have? Well, I pray that was helpful. Let's conclude in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do confess that unbelief remains in our hearts because of that remnant of corruption within us. Even for us who are united to Christ, and so we ask for grace this Sabbath day to receive what seems to be the words of men as what it really is, the word of Christ, and to practice faith in the moment we hear the word read, we hear the word preached, and even thereafter, that we would indeed lay it up in our hearts and put it into practice in our lives and grow in humility. Father, we... We need your help. We ask for great grace, for we are so weak and frail and feeble. We ask that you would uphold us this Sabbath day, that you would strengthen us, that you would conform us more into the image of your Son. Through Christ we pray.